Welcome to the Expedition Success Podcast, where we hope to elevate your mind through discussion with successful innovators, entrepreneurs, athletes, professionals, and creators on their journeys towards success. I'm your host, Liam Kaufman, and unfortunately, my co-host, Michael, wasn't able to make today's recording as he is in Wisconsin for a Purdue Club basketball tournament. That's not a problem, though, because today we are joined by a great guest, a mentor and role model for myself, Mark Dewey. Mark studied biology at the University of Ottawa in 1975 and received an MBA from the University of Western Ontario in 1983. From there, Mark had an illustrious entrepreneurial career, having started multiple companies in the realm of pharmaceuticals and beyond. So Mr. Dewey, couldn't be more excited to get to hear about your insights and experience. So thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, it's nice to see you, Liam. Hope all is well. Yup. So uh, before we get into any of your actual experiences, companies you've worked on, um, could you talk about your background a bit? Where did you grow up? Yeah, sure. Feel free to ask any questions and uh, or clarifications if you want. I uh, was actually born in Edmonton, Alberta, uh, in Canada. That's Western Canada. Think of it as the like the the Houston of the North, of so, sort of, um, and um, then um, went to uh, uh, Montreal to grow up and all the way through until high school, and then went to um, Ottawa, where my father was working in the Treasury Department, of the federal government. Um, we're all exactly on the same street where all the truckers are piling up right now in Ottawa uh, for that huge, huge convoy um, demonstrating against uh, against the, the mass mandates. But anyway, yeah, the University of Ottawa, where I did um, undergraduate in biology and a, and a graduate uh, degree in, in biology uh, before heading off to uh, London, Ontario for uh, a master's degree in business administration. Uh, and uh, from there, I always just always wanted to be an entrepreneur and wanted to, uh, didn't uh, plan on working for anybody and turned out I didn't have to work for anybody. So worked out okay. So then you would definitely say it's something that you've always had. You, you knew you always wanted to be an entrepreneur versus something that kind of came on later in your life. Yeah, I always felt that I wanted to be um, uh, independent. Uh, I wanted to be, um, didn't know it in myself that I was quantrarian, but uh, it turned out that way. Uh, but I really wanted to uh, do kind of like my own thing, but also the more, it was really important not to be rich, but I really wanted to be financially independent so that I could have this, uh, this one life in a way that I'd be able to help other people my way and also live the life that uh, I wanted to live um, and, and not be highly constrained by other people making a bunch of decisions because we're all very fallible. I make a lot of mistakes and what, what I want to do is live with my mistakes and not live with someone else's bad decision making. So, uh, it was uh, it was the part of the challenge I, I gave to myself, and um, and it takes a lot of time and effort to if if you if you're devoted to it, but it's yeah, very so rewarding. Then, then uh, so you decided to study biology. Can you speak a little bit about why you chose to study biology as compared to maybe business or engineering? Something that a lot of entrepreneurs kind of tend to study. Sure. Uh, I think it's really important for an individual, especially in their formative years, to focus on something. And I don't know, I, I'm, I'm not convinced it matters what, what you study, but you want to go in and pick something that's really pat, you're passionate about that comes naturally, 
that is um, a, an area where you can go deep into and build competence that, that translates into confidence. And it shows other people, your future collaborators, that you have capability of thinking at a certain level uh, of detail, a certain level of, uh, of uh, complexity, essentially. But um, what you study and what you end up doing are going to almost invariably be different. One, because the world is pretty broad, but number two, it's always changing. So um, when I studied biology, it's, I, I, I could read and study and look at biology type stuff, whether it be biochemistry, uh, physiology, environmental, in, until I die, no problem. So, I mean, uh, if, if you give me some other subject, I might have some difficulty generating the motivation around it. So, uh, you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, what do I really, you know, care about? What I want, what do I want to, you know, study and, and do it. So to a level where, um, you've gone past what the typical or average person does. Yeah. And I think that's a good point because, I think studying something that you're actually interested in, something you have a passion for, you'll innately be more inclined to put more effort and be more inclined to study more and really try to develop a deep understanding of that topic. Um, would you say then that working in pharmaceuticals and having run these companies, would you say that you've actually used any of the um, topics that you've studied in college or was it more just giving you the ability to think deeply? I think the ability to deep, uh, go deep, but also the ability to quickly find and uh, understand how you absorb and learn so that you can quickly find information that's going to support your current challenges, uh, current uh, decision-making requirements uh, and expectations. So it's also um, a good platform. Uh, not so much the actual details of what you learn, but rather the uh, the, the structure um, of, of how things are put together and uh, the people that develop the thinking that forms the uh, the basis for uh, for the activities that your people are undertaking. Exactly. So then after you got your master's in biology, why did you decide to pursue an MBA and then a master's in international business specifically? Yeah, so um, it was right around that time that I was trying to figure out, okay, so what can I do with biology that um, is gonna be really successful? Uh, and trying to um, ascertain the best way, and one, one question was, should I do a PhD uh, uh, in Canada? Uh, when And after you do a PhD, typically you would teach or typically would work in a research lab for, in the federal government, um, as opposed to, because uh, at the time there wasn't a lot of entrepreneurial activity in Canada, uh, particularly in biology or biotechnology. So uh, I decided that I would uh, maybe do an MBA, looked into that, it looked interesting. I hadn't studied any kind of business before that, had no interest in business, and particularly mm -hmm. have a, had a particular kind of dislike in particular for administration and accounting kind of things. Uh, bean counting, I was not too, too interested in that at all. But um, I decided that what I would do is maybe see where I get the biggest scholarship. And it turns out that in Canada at the time, the federal government was trying to find people with biology and interest in biotechnology and people interested in, in possibly running businesses. So they wanted to help folks. And I got a good scholarship to do an MBA at Canada's, Canada's best business school. So I, I, I jumped on that opportunity with the plan of emerging uh, and, and starting a business as, as soon as possible. And I knew that also 
biology is, a, is, is an international, because uh, Canadians, the market in Canada is not very big, you know, 33 million um, citizens. And so you've got to immediately be ready to go around the world. And so that's why it was the, the interest that I had in, in international. So at this point, when you were pursuing the MBA, then you hadn't had any experience starting companies or did you already have your first company or first entrepreneurial oh, none, experience? None whatsoever. There, were, there weren't any. I was actually um, protected, not against it, but never had any exposure. Uh, it was just uh, when I, as I was growing up and, and, um, and there was a neighbor in a, in a neighbor that was friends to, to the family and the guy had left his job. Uh, and I can remember thinking there were a lot of people saying, what a mistake, what a mistake, you know, take a big gamble. And, and he was driving a pretty broken up car and it was working really hard and it just didn't sound like a smart thing to do. Then a year goes by and he's got a Cadillac, a Cadillac. five years later, he was, had his own plane, you know, uh, so, and he was uh, doing, doing, doing a great job of, uh, he was in, uh, doing, he moved for, to doing HVAC, which doesn't sound very exciting, but he was doing HVAC specifically for, um, computer installations, mainframe computers. And the next thing you know, um, it was it was just going gangbusters, all kinds of big companies building, you know, um, uh, computer centers. And he was doing the, his company was doing the raised floors and all kinds of cool stuff. And so he was, it turned out to be very successful. I said, I, I got to do that. I want to do that. I don't want to work for someone else first, or especially the, the, you know, the government and, and have my brain uh, slowly deteriorate. <laughs> <laughs> from the moment I get to take the first job. And so uh, that's what I set upon myself to do some kind of um, business on the international scene in the area of biology. And the best way to do that is to start to start in Europe. And so I took an opportunity to to study uh, to study in Europe. Um, it was between first and second year at the MBA program that I decided to start my first business. Um, and it was really hard, really tough um, and, and difficult. Um, until uh, not giving up, and in part because of a competition I had with a colleague in business school. We went to two different cities, and we ran the same kind of business, a painting business called College Pro. Um, and it was, after getting over a couple of humps, um, became extremely successful. Um, and it was, it, was, it was amazing. And I, I knew then and there that there was no way I'm going to work for anyone else when you can make a truckload of money in the, in the summertime. Um, being real productive. Uh, it was really cool. So walk me through this painting business a little bit. Like how did it actually start? Like what was the idea that allowed you to kind of break into that, to the market or small area that you were um, doing this business? Yeah. So you have to realize something. Back then there was um, only one business school in the U.S. Uh, with an entrepreneurial program that was called Babson. Uh, in Canada, there weren't any entrepreneurial programs. There was a few business schools with uh, one or two classes in entrepreneurship, and they really weren't very mature in any particular way or terribly impressive. Um, and by the way, when I went to Europe, it was even worse, <laughs> even worse. There was just nothing to do with entrepreneurship as a study or as a preparation for future endeavors. It was just not really a, uh, an area of academic uh, preparation. Um, Today, of course, because of the importance of business uh, enterprise uh, in, in the small business arena, um, entrepreneurship was a, you know, a major a major study. And so it was all kind of new. And um, I uh, 
had an opportunity to to be in my class, I was like the one that wanted to be the entrepreneur, right? So I had the big mouth and not part of people. Said, yeah, put your, it's not as easy as you think and it's hard and we just want to take jobs with banks and things like that. Uh, but I had a buddy of mine who uh, we were kind of arguing of uh, the point of, you know, how, what's the best way and that eventually my, you know, our particular way of entrepreneurship would be better. So we decided to have a bet, put our money where our mouth was. We had a bet and that was really what drove me actually was this collegial bet that who would make the most amount of money that summer. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, in our, in our, the, I can tell you that at that time, if you'll get a job with the government through the summertime, you'd make, you know, three or $4,000. You know, if you can pocket that, put that in the bank, it'd be pretty damn good. You know, that probably might be equivalent to 6,000, 7,000. That'd be the best you could do kind of thing. Um, but because of that competition, we started, uh, uh, I went to Ottawa. Uh, uh, he was um, went to a place called Waterloo, uh, where, uh, where uh, now famous for uh, blackberries, <laughs> where it started. Um, and anyway, um, and uh, that summer, I made uh, grossed one hundred and ten thousand dollars, and pocketed wow. close to fifteen. And so uh, for me, so it'd be like making thirty thousand maybe the summer now, and the, this the dollars today. And then you sit back and go, man, I'm, there's no way I'm doing anything else. Not, not painting, but, but being entrepreneurial um, and putting two to get two and two equaling five or six. And that seeing that uh, the genesis of the value and the genesis of the um, success is very, very rewarding. It gives you a lot of confidence. You have to realize that, uh, you know, I've got a lot of, uh, I know that I have a lot of, uh, you know, failures, failures. Uh, I shouldn't say that. I should say, uh, you know, weaknesses. Always known that one of the, one of the reasons I like biology, in fact, one side of biology, quantitative biology, as opposed to descriptive biology, uh, is that I'm, I'm strong in numbers but weak with words. You know, I'm good with pictures but weak with with spelling. You know, I'm putting things in, in the right order. And biology is a great is all systems based. In other words, it all fits together nicely. And so all you really need to know is have a picture of how it should work. And that's why I do all my businesses. I have a picture in my mind of how it should work. And then, and then keep the fundamentals in mind, uh, and then, and, and not worry about the details. Uh, business is a complex. You need a lot of people and getting people around you that are better than you to worry about the details really, really solves, uh, a, a lot of problems and allows the, the whole boat to, to, to rise to, um, to un, untold heights, uh, sometimes. So is that, uh, is that what you did with your painting business? Did you start out with this idea and then you, got people around you to help you out or is it more of like a one one person venture where you're doing most of the work yeah so that's where when i said it was really hard especially at the start is that um i found that uh i thought that i would be the mover and shaker i would be responsible i would take all that the, the glory and make all the money well notice notice that uh, if i grossed 110 a lot of other people made a lot of money right uh, a lot of other students did and it turns out that I was at least a couple of times thinking of throwing the, uh, the towel in until getting, again, smarter people to contribute and to, to let other people be involved, to give you guidance and, uh, and, and help you get back onto the, onto the right, uh, right path. Uh, and, you, and you share, of course, the, uh, the glory with them. It's really one of the best things that, about the business that, that I feel like they don't, at least they didn't teach it back then. Um, and a lot of people that want to be entrepreneurs are often self-centered, egotistical, 
And that does that really doesn't work very good, at least not in the businesses I've ever run. Um, so one of the key a key a key learning uh, for me, and it still took, by the way, a good ten years to really get it, because young people uh, don't learn as fast when it comes to emotional quotient issues. We always focus on, you know, intelligence uh, and try to show people that we're smarter. Uh, but um, for sure, for sure, getting uh, this idea of having a team uh, around you um, is a really important lesson. So then how do you cultivate like a good team that can work with you, especially like nowadays where um, kids will have such, there'll be such high talent um, and they will feel that, that ego that, that they, uh, they deserve to be at a specific company or a specific place. And how are you able to just get someone to be on your team and convince them that this is a big idea and that this is something worth their time? Sure. Um, so that's where, uh, like all, all kinds of marketing, um, uh, people feel uh, sometimes get confused that people need things, want things. Well, and that's true for shelter and food, but when it comes to anything that's, um, beyond the normal everyday stuff, it's all about self-actualization. So if you talk to someone, they're going to have a dream, they're going to have a, um, they're going to have some kind of aspiration. And the trick is to tie your, your company, your trajectory, uh, uh, and your vision of success with an e on an individual basis. You've got to be able to talk to people. Uh, and of course, it becomes more difficult when you have you know, a thousand people. But, um, but, but when, when you're still in the dozens and, and all the way up to 100, 150, you really should be touching base with the people on the way in to the company to make sure you at least grab one nugget of their dream and tie it into your dream. Uh, and uh, that becomes, uh, then their energy starts flowing into your energy and that can be, goes goes a real long distance. You know, Everyone has to work, everyone has to get some money, everyone has to eat, but, but they're spending most of their time during their day thinking about their future, right? Thinking about what's gonna, gonna happen uh, in, in their life. And they all have different, unique potential journeys. Um, while they're helping you out, man, make sure that they're just excited as hell, not about your dream, by the way, but about their dream and how it adds to your dream. Uh, and that's really, really effective. So then you're a big supporter of kind of not actually in a way, like planning out your future, like knowing what you want to do and why you want to do it. Oh, big time. Yep. Being flexible still. Um, and so the idea of having a vision about what the next 10 years looks like, you're having a mission about the next five years, having a series of goals that are singular uh, and nicely uh, described, you know, for on a, on a yearly basis. Uh, and then I'm a big, big believer in having objectives that support goals, goals that support missions and missions that, of course, in our alignment with your vision. And uh, these objectives that I'm referring to are typically sometimes daily, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly or quarterly. But they have something very specific. They have this characteristic that an objective has that these other dimensions of future don't. And that is that an objective has a time dimension and a quantity dimension. And I can tell you that, that having the discipline of focusing and making sure that that's the case is part of a fundamental parts of, of success. Uh, so um, that way, all your objectives, by definition, you know whether you're successful or not. 
and can then adjudicate and, and change rapidly based on uh, success and failure of objectives. And I'm a big believer that you should hit your objectives about 80% of the time, fail about 20% of the time. If you're, if you're, if you're winning over 95% of the time, you're not stretching <laughs> enough. And if, and if you're losing 50% of the time, man, you're going to be so depressed. You probably aren't going to go too far because you're not happy and enjoying the journey. Um, but yeah, that's so that's how I pretty run things. So taking it from like a top down approach where you have your overall, like meaning your overall goals, which can be very, very long term and then bringing it down into, to actual steps, definitive steps that you can track. Um, whether that's year to year or however time frame you do it. Correct. It makes a lot of sense. Especially, I, I really, um, I think the failure aspect of that is really key. Like you said, you should fail like 20% of the time. Um, I think that's something that's overlooked a lot um, because the only way you do grow is if you fail. And if you continue to just succeed, 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 you probably won't get anywhere too big because in order to actually make those big jumps you have to fail like that um so that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah hopefully this won't be too confusing but there's also different different uh, you know groupings of objectives you can think of the you know your tried and true and your bread and butter activity sets it might be higher than uh higher than 80 uh a little bit but also you know the new areas where you're you're moving into new space um you're probably a lot lower than 80 percent Okay, uh, and uh, but overall, your whole your whole entrepreneurial trajectory is about eighty twenty, uh, because uh, there's going to be times when you're uh, working in brand new green space, uh, starting at the startup of a company, a lot of, trying out a lot of different ideas. Uh, failure rate there is even even higher, um, uh, but that's okay. You could, you'd, you'd expect that, um, and that's that's okay. Uh, you're quite right. You're everything. I'm also a big believer, as you as you know, Liam, in the whole concept, both figurative and and uh, as well as real uh, concept of obstacles. Um, I'm a big believer that you take everything uh, that's before you, uh, take a look at it, uh, make a decision whether you're going to get you know go into this obstacle, uh, welcome them, um, because every time you get over or finally through an obstacle, you are that much better, that much better, uh, well prepared. For, for the rest of the uh, activity set or journey. Very true. And I think it's important to be um, aware that you're in those almost cycles, if you want to call them, of failure and success so that when you are like facing those obstacles, you, you can be aware that this is part of it. And if I continue to work and I continue to, to keep standing up, if I fall down, then uh, it will lead to future growth. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I learned, uh, and of course, you're always learning. I'm, I'm always learning. I'm taking notes. I, I take it. I have a diary where I review and put notes down. And one time, uh, once I gave a speech at Babson, so it was kind of fun for me to eventually, many years later, after you know, uh, wanting to and would have liked to have gone to Babson, um, go went there to give a speech, and then eventually hire some students from there. And one of the concepts I learned there was this idea that you don't fail. You know, there's another perspective of failure, uh, which is really that you really start pivoting. Uh, and so that when you change and decide, for example, that, uh, that a particular company endeavor is not working out, you, you, instead of saying I failed, you know, it might be a lot better to have a perspective that we're pivoting and that we're taking everything that we've learned uh, from the failure and from all other successes. And we're now jumping on to a new uh, you know, trajectory. Uh, with a with the, with more momentum and, and more capability. 
So you say pivoting, um, and that's that's interesting because I think a lot of times, especially entrepreneurs, when they have a company that they've been working on, spending all their time on, it almost becomes like a son to them. Um, and then they have to pivot or they have to to put this company away and decide it's not worth the time anymore. How have have you yourself ever been had a company like that? And how do you know it's time to to give up this venture to, to stop spending time towards this because it's just not working? Um, that, of course, is a, a judgment call um, that um, and, and some people stick with companies longer than other people do. Um, when, and there's a difference between pivoting within a company, in other words, saying that a certain activity set, you know, a certain component, division, uh, product category isn't working. So you so you pivot, learn from it, and pivot versus uh, shutting down, uh, potentially moving away completely from a from a company. Uh, uh, one goes a little bit s- s- faster than the other. Big believer in failing rapidly, so you don't waste a lot of time. I'm also, though, pretty dogged. You know, if I, if I start, I start companies, and so when I started a company, I had a lot of a, a lot of conviction uh, for it. So I, uh, I keep on trying and trying, typically. But still, there comes a time uh, of the 21 companies I've done. Um, uh, there's at least a, a third of them that had to be shut down. It was the appropriate thing to do. In my case, uh, I believe that you you go down to a point where you have uh, uh, you know money is getting tight. Um, and you want to be able to save enough money which, so that when you shut down a company, you do so very gracefully uh, with both uh, integrity and with uh, open mind and assisting everybody that um, was part of that dream and the, 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 the train, if you will, going forward. Because some people take it pretty hard, really hard. Uh, it was part of their life, you know, part of their dream. And, and so you got to make sure they get soft landing. Uh, so you have enough time to find them jobs, enough time to uh, get them um, um, comfortable and, and actually get that last paycheck or even more, right, uh, et cetera. But also there's other stakeholders and companies. If you if you can shut a company down really professionally, uh, that becomes a badge of honor and people invest in your next company, <laughs> okay, because they know that you're, 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 not, you're not running away and hiding. Um, and that, uh, or for that matter, work. I've got a lot of people that uh, I've, I've worked with in several of my companies because they wanna, they wanna keep on being associated with a certain level of success and alert, and also style of execution, um, which is also important. And so, um, I'm not, I'm not worried about closing companies down if it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So then, uh, you said that you've had 21 companies that you've worked on. Yeah. over your lifetime um and you said the first one was the painting one during while you were pursuing your mba sure. um so after after you had that degree and after you had this painting business which i'm sure what was pretty successful um over that time that you worked on it but i know for a fact that you had bigger aspirations than a painting company and you wanted to make bigger change in the world um and that just wouldn't cut it so from there what was your next pursuit or after you got that MBA, what was the company that you decided to work on or that you worked for? Sure. I started a company uh, called Do West Research, which um, it was a funny name. It was called Do West. We, I, plan, I, I, I had a dream one time to be in California working, you know, and have a nice business there and everything. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, but anyway, the uh, but I ended up going to uh, going to uh, Europe and starting this little company and wanted to get into pharmaceuticals because I had this really whole bunch of ideas, uh, but found that it was really hard to compete. Um, so many smarter people, such great track records. And then one of, uh, of my mentors suggested to me, well, definitely stay in biology, definitely stay in high tech, definitely stay in the things that you're interested in, like, like pharmaceuticals and stuff. But everyone else is so much smarter, so many years of experience. Uh, and you want to do service first, which is a smart idea because College Pro is a service, right? You, you could, your break even was like three windows. <laughs> you paint three windows and you paid for the paint and the, and your ladder. Uh, you move pretty quick. Uh, and so I started, I was starting a, a, a consulting company that was going to focus on market research in particular because of my interest in business. Uh, I wanted to do new product entry into the world markets. So I was going to help companies do that. So I figured I'd learn enough from doing that that I'll start my own companies with new products. Uh, but no one was hiring me because <laughs> I was pretty freshly minted, right? Uh, and so my mentor suggested, don't worry about all the pharmaceuticals that are already out there and the categories that are already out there. Focus on something that people don't even know anything about that way. And you don't know anything about it either, but then you learn enough that you'll be at least on par with everyone else that's, you know, starting out in this new area. And at the time, monoclonal antibodies was brand new. And so I did my own little study of monoclonal antibodies, wrote a little, little paper, uh, and, and it was a commercial paper, not a published paper. It's like a white paper and um, and started running around uh, talking to as many people as I could uh, could see and would listen to me. And uh, they started saying, well, I'll, uh, why don't you go and help me go over here, go to this country, go to that country. And I liked traveling at the time. We eventually had five uh, offices in on, on uh, as many continents uh, running around doing um, a lot, a lot of footwork, doing great market research for the likes of DuPont. Um, and uh, other large, uh, you know, Pfizer's of the world. It was a lot of fun. Uh, of course, I was traveling all the time, so eventually <laughs> wanted to slow down uh, and then went into data analysis because with primary market research, you're running around the globe, uh, whereas uh, with uh, data, it comes to you, right? Someone else has aggregated it and brought it in, and, and, and I was able to focus more on the data analytics, artificial intelligence side of predictive analytics as a, as a second phase and, and the start of another company called Prometrics, uh, which stands for professional measurement. And, and that worked out real well. Um, and, um, and, you know, it's, it, it does give you a lot of uh, satisfaction to build and, and then sell something, start from scratch. And uh, eventually other people see such value in it that they, uh, they, uh, they come knocking on your door. I can tell you that uh, one, of the, one of the ironies of entrepreneurship is that when you need money, no one's giving it to you. And then when you don't need any money, they're knocking on your door <laughs> to, to, to give you money. Uh, that's funny. So 100% did you, at, you decide to make this decision to, to just study and research something that you're not as familiar with. And if I heard it correctly, it was these monoclone antibodies. Correct. Um, which, do you want to explain that a little bit? for? Oh, the viewers well, and myself too, who's not yeah. familiar with biology. Sure, sure. I guess, I guess, uh, you know, one of the themes uh, of what I do is to try to, knowing that I'm not the smartest guy around, uh, it's pretty good to find people that are really smart and kind of like get behind in their shadows, pick one area, and then speed up basically and just barely get in front of that little group. Uh, and the rest of the people think you're really, really smart. Um, 
And so at the time, um, there was uh, most most drugs were small molecule that oh, drugs like Valium, for example, like you take into your body, right? Calm down, um, yeah. kind of thing. Whereas the, the the new biology at the time was that this uh, that we could actually make monoclonal antibodies in animals like like rabbits and, and alpacas, uh, and as you know, we have a farm with alpacas. Uh, is that is that uh, you can then extract and purify them, and these monoclonal antibodies come can go into a body and help with you know uh, infectious diseases. Uh, can help build your immunity against cancer, and so um, over the course of twenty years, uh, literally. That not hundreds, thousands of new drugs came out. They were all based on this new technology of taking the the antigen, the bad thing, if you will, putting into an animal, building antibodies, taking them out, um, and give them, and then putting them into humans for for uh, purified form to uh, elicit the uh, the function of your our own immune systems that are of course typically weak, which is why we are going to have a um, you know a, a disease uh, associated with that. Uh, lack of uh, strong antibodies so it's like the the backwards almost of what what was previously or what was the norm back then yeah something something like that yeah then the next <laughs> then you then you start jumping on, on on waves you know the next wave after that was something called dna probes um and then um you know these days we, we do uh, mrna which is just another another example of the next of the next wave so to speak so then if you you, you were struggling to get people that would hire you just because you're so new and you didn't feel like you could break into this industry where people are so developed already. Um, so how did you go from being in that position to now being in a position where you were trying to get people to, or you were trying to get clients for your consulting company? And how were you able to convince people that you could, that they should pay you and that you were going to do a good service? And this research you had done was really something that would make an impact. Sure. Um, so entrepreneurs do need to do something, and they they they, they have to take risks. Um, I'm not. Uh, make sure you don't interpret my next comment as suggesting that you should ever be untrue, lie, or be dece deceptive. But it is important for you to see the future, describe the future. It's probably good to point out that <laughs> you're, it's a supposition, so it may not come to pass, right? But you usually say that kind of quietly. <laughs> almost under your breath, <laughs> uh, because um, people want to engage, um, uh, you know, uh, partners in business that are willing to stick their nose out and built a reputation on not giving up, you know, in other words, getting, into, so when there are problems, you get into the foxhole and you don't come out of that foxhole until you solve the problem with, you know, for your client. When you do it, when you do something like that, that person, who you probably saved, right? Saved their career, saved the project, saved something. That person for the rest of their career, 20, 30 year career, will always call you, okay? And so um, the, uh, the the idea of, uh, if you're gonna bother jumping into a foxhole, you might as well be, be, jump into one where you're gonna be just really excited about learning a lot to be able to solve that, you know, solve that problem. And I found that uh, the idea of having enough courage to be comfortable with ambiguity with and making it constructive. So the concept of constructive ambiguity and being good at it is a fundamental trait, I think, of entrepreneurs that you don't hear about much. Um, and then um, you've got to have uh, be the ability to keep things real, real simple. Um, 
So, you know, you study something technically that gives you a degree of confidence and speaks to other people's um, um, interest in dealing with smart people, right? Because it decreases their, their risk factor. But then the entrepreneur is the person that decides that they're going to try to fill a gap between what it is today and what people want tomorrow. And you're going to fill a gap and most often you don't know whether you can do it. All right, so you're going to say you can do it. You're going to say you've got courage. Or you're going to say that you're going to put the team together. You're going to say it's going to happen. And yeah, you kind of close your eyes and then you jump. <laughs> okay. Um, and so there's these, uh, these uh, you're, you're always learning. You're always building stuff. Uh, you, you're, you're, and, and having a few degrees on, behind your name is good so people can see that you can do it, especially at the start. Later on, the degrees aren't that important. So you, you know, you've got people like Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg and... Uh, 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 Bill Gates, that you know, didn't finish their degrees, but um, I, I feel it's very important for today's entrepreneur in a very competitive environment. Finish your degrees, get a few extra ones while you're at it when you're young and having fun. Um, do a lot more, take the time to think about what you're going to want to do with your entrepreneurial uh, career. But when you're um, doing this process of, of these, I call it the five C's. Throughout this, my little paradigm of of um, where's the courage, you know, and do I have the conviction to jump into this, this, this new space, this new business, this new gap, if you will, to try to fill it. And that courage is essentially the risk taking process and you get paid for risk, taking that risk. Um, I feel sometimes guilty when you make a ton of money, millions of dollars, something, you know, should I feel guilty? I don't feel guilty now because I'm the one that took the, the risk, you know, and put the team together. But the, the idea then you see is that you have, um, that these these five C's of courage is number one that you start with. You're then uh, you, what you want to do is apply a degree of creativity. You get second C, and sit down and go. I'm I'm going to think this through. I'm going to talk to a bunch of people maybe, but I'm going to think this through and devote myself to a plan, a vision. Okay, um, and then I apply some critical thinking. You know the best way of dissecting, putting these exhibits together, putting these goals together, putting the whole plan together. Um, and then you, knowing that you need people that are smarter than you, you're going to go and collaborate and put team together. And then you go down the process of being a really effective communicator. Uh, these are all C's, and you put them all together, and then it becomes a big circle. Because uh, 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 what happens once you start communicating to people, communicating, they'll give you reinforcement. They'll give you a uh, pat you on the back. And that, that makes you feel so confident uh, that it gives you more courage. <laughs> and then you do the cycle again, right? Courage, creativity, critical thinking, collaboration, communication. And wow, it becomes a, a, a spiral going up, 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 and up. Um, and whenever you have a choice, the key, the key idea is you should always be putting alternative. Never pick one thing when it's in front of you. Never. Always at least two, if not three, established criteria uh, for the selection. Um, and one of the key criteria of selection when everything else is equal is always think of a, of a pyramid. And you always want to climb a pyramid of value um, so that eventually you're at a high level in that pyramid and you get really surprised that, wait a second, I just spent one hour talking to these people and we just sold something for $500,000 with a $200,000 margin. And that's, I don't even have to see this thing again until the project's finished, you know, uh, in, in, in two months. Uh, that's, uh, that's high value time and high value uh, uh, delivery of, um, of services uh, and or products. That's, um, make, you know, that's what makes the, the, the world go around. 
um, is a lot of fun. So with communication in specific, um, following that process, it seems like there would be almost a jump at some point where you go from having this business plan, you plan everything out, you know your risk, to now looking for very smart individuals who can help you make this risk, make this company a reality. Um, how do you begin or how do you, what were some of the habits you had that allowed you to communicate effectively with people, especially because I feel like when you start something out and you have all these new people that you need to keep in track, it can be hard to do that. Um, so how are you able to do that successfully? Sure. That's a good, good question. I think that a lot of um, entrepreneurs I see, because there's a lot of them out there these days, young ones, young people, they know that they have to communicate. They know that they have to sell. They know they have to convince people. That's all true. But I think that a lot of people I see that they forget about is that communication is really, at least in business, is an exchange. There's a whole theory, you know, social exchange theory. Um, and what's really key is not the one-way communication, which is really selling, typically selling, right? Um, a good salesman typically will then, first of all, understand the client, understand the need set, uh, deliver you know, a bit of a solution. Um, entrepreneurs, when they're communicating, it's very much uh, a process of networking. And as you probably know, networking, which of course has changed quite a bit since the COVID, uh, it's actually become better and more more effective and more fun and more productive actually for the few that know how to, how to manage it within the post-COVID environment. But the idea is that when you're communicating, you are giving more than you're receiving. You are, um, in fact, uh, being very empathetic in the process of making sure that that exchange uh, uh, and the way you're encoding this demand is because you want something to happen, right? You want you want something to the world to go and align with all the stars that you're trying to put into your plan. Um, and and that's uh, there's a lot of friction, right? There's a, a lot of reasons why it's not they're not lined up. Uh, but by making sure people understand that by listening to you, there's going to be so much better off. It solves their problems. By the way, I'm not talking about just their business problems and their and their and maybe their job problem, but their their um, again their dream is going to be all you know feeling making people around you feel very special because of the interaction each and every time. Yeah, they should. They should, every communication. It's not always the case. Of course, sometimes you have disagreements, but the plan is walking into a communication. It should be as short as possible to achieve the goal of uh, the goal in question, and that when the two parties, you know, walk in different directions, both of them are so happy that that communication took place. Uh, and, and by the way, sometimes, you know, there are some people in the world that are tough to deal with. And that's when you actually have communications that are not designed for a success immediately, but they're designed to, to make deposits into that bank of social exchange theory. So that when you do have to come in with a, a bit of a tough request demand, you've got so much, you know, capital uh, in, the, in your bank account with that person that they're going to go, damn, I don't know that I agree, but, you know, Damn, Liam, you've been so good to me. You know, you've been, you, you, you make great decisions. I'm going to take a follow. I'll, I'll do it for you, man. I'm, I'm going to have you back. Let's do it. Let's see what happens. So then how do you deal with people that maybe aren't as good of communicators or you give them certain deadlines and they just don't meet those deadlines? From, from that point, where do you do? Um, well, it depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about people that are, highly, you know, are, are productive people, 
Uh, deadlines are, are really a function of expectation. And so you still have to decide whether the people in question, um, for example, I've worked a lot with people to, uh, that have extremely high IQ and very low EQ. Right? And so, that, but if they're highly productive, now we have that. That's one kind of challenge. By the way, if there's another kind of person, uh, let's dispense with that real quick. I don't want to be mean here, but there's facts of life. If you're dealing with someone, regardless of IQ, but has a low EQ and is not very productive and is of low energy, all right, and, 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 and doesn't engage, uh, it's really important to recognize that sometimes there's not a good fit. And so then yeah. you, you have to... You have to find a spot in your organization. I believe. Uh, I believe not everyone agrees with me on this one. Uh, if you hire them, guess what? <laughs> you got a responsibility. To take. I'm Canadian, right? So we we have a different social uh, structure. We believe in the commonwealth of people uh, and the common good. Uh, and so you try to find a place in there in your organization. Um, and if they don't like that that job, then then, then you can help them uh, on their way out uh, of, of the company and maybe find another company, another another place for them. I can tell you that uh, Americans think a little bit differently. They simply say, you know, you're out of here, dude. <laughs> we don't need you <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, so I'm uh, uh, now I can tell you that, uh, therefore, whenever I have a much higher level of um, tenure uh, than all the comparative companies that I ever you know look at, uh, which means my uh, training costs are a lot lower and my loyalty is a lot higher. Um, and, and I enjoy working with the people because I also like them a lot because they're, 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 they come up with a lot better ideas when their job's not at stake. People that, that are enjoying their work in their existence have a tendency to be more productive. But more, 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 more in particular, the space I work in is, is not ho-hum. We're, 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 we're often at the cutting edge of something. Uh, and so I need, I need their ideas. You know, I, I need them to problem solve on their own quickly and not, and not waste time. Yeah. There's like research that backs that up. If you're interested in something you're passionate about it, you'll be much more productive. Um, that's a different take too. Cause I was expecting you, especially after you said, if you have someone with a low IQ and a low EQ and it's not productive at that point, I'm just thinking fire that person. But, um, it's very, it's cool that you're, you're, you're instead of that you're looking for where can this person actually still fit in the company or how can I help them in the future yeah I think a good rule of thumb I know you you, you know, probably find this is kind of like expensive but the work the world works especially in consulting uh, where I've spent a, a number of my companies provide advice and get paid is that the rule of thumb is real simple uh, and Deloitte KPMG the Price White House Coopers, all the ones that I've worked over the years with, um, use a similar formula. And that is, you've got one third direct costs, one third overhead, and one third profit. Now, <clears throat> uh, it doesn't matter what level of person's at, right? If they're if they're billing billing out at fifty bucks, sorry, if they're if, if it costs if they cost me raw fifty bucks an hour, and I'm billing out one hundred and fifty, I'm still making the same amount of profit margin, right? Versus a really smart person that let's say is uh, cost me uh, raw might cost me $100 an hour. Uh, if I'm billing them out at 300, I'm still making the same margin. Yeah, uh, that's something that can be really overlooked. Um, very, very uh, different take, I feel like, because most, most entrepreneurs that I hear about, they're definitely pursuing that top talent, but don't think of it in terms of how it will affect the uh, balance sheet. Um, taking things back a bit, back to Duess research, um, were there any struggles you faced with this first company, with this first consulting company you had? Oh, sure. Um, the um, I'm um, I'm a believe 
the people have different um, styles of entrepreneurship, uh, and not, not one is not better than another. It's really, a question of which one better serves the, uh, the, the the personalities involved. I'm an organic grower, uh, so I grow things organically, which permits uh, a very strong um, control over the direction of the company, um, and so I don't take other people's money. All right, so I don't. I'm not. I'm not a big big believer in leveraging um, and starting off a company where you're taking money from a whole bunch of other people um, until the right time. Um, and so what I mean is that I want to be able to get to significant value inflection points first. Um, and, and so uh, at Duet, uh, one of the challenges continually over the first couple of years was cash flow, right? And so people might, uh, at that point in time, people are not wanting to give me money. I would have to go around doing the road, road, a road show to get their interest, which I didn't. I, instead, I focused on, on sales uh, and generating my own income, my own margin, and solving my own cash flow issues. Um, and uh, there's a, it goes slower, uh, but I find it more rewarding and a lot less time wasted chit-chatting. You get, you've started coming with five people. You got five different ideas in there. They might say that, but they believe in the vision. That's fine. But let me tell you, everyone's got style differences. Then you throw into the pot some VC money, et cetera, and that becomes you know really problematic. Once you get big enough and you can get a, a standard banker to give you money that is non-dilutive and simply has an interest rate, uh, your accretive a component of every action you take is much more rewarding from a financial perspective. And then when you go sell the company, man, you got you know a huge chunk of the company as opposed to a minority. Yeah, so definitely focusing on proof of market, would you say, before um, before even like looking for for funding or anything, like really prove that this this idea or this product is something that's working. And then if it is at that point, then you can still just continue on and grow it by yourself um, so that you, you do have that control in the future versus um, getting funding right away. Correct. I mean, there's a, there are challenges depending on the level of technology that you have in a, you know, so for, for a painting company, for example, you, there's no technology involved, right? Uh, for a consulting company, there's no real technology involved, um, you know, per se. Uh, going with the pharmaceutical, on the other hand, now you, there, is, there is technology, so you, there's sometimes capital investments that are needed. So I waited uh, until I had a whole bunch of my own capital to start some of the capital intensive uh, businesses that I have, like oncology companies and cancer companies that, that, that I'm currently uh, running. Um, but um, the making make before you start a company, I, what I always ask is these people that I'm, I'm mentoring and, and helping other people start companies is I tell them, where's the exhibit? And they say, what exhibit? Well, the exhibit, where's, where, where's your, the first 10 customers? Oh, we don't have the product yet. We haven't built it. No, I understand. I understand. Show me the exhibit that lists the 10 companies that you think will buy this product. And, they, and they'll, they'll always find excuses. <laughs> they go, listen, how many customers do you think you'll have after one year? Oh, we'll have at least 100 customers. Okay, cool. Good. Find 10 now. I know you don't have the product, but just give me the 10. And they said, why? Oh, I'm, you want me to advise you? I'm going to call them. <laughs> I'm going to ask these people. These people, you know, so-and-so company has the idea of building this. How many are you going to buy? <laughs> and, and, and it's surprising that a lot of people are really worried about that exercise, that discipline necessary to, to in fact, engage the prospective customer. Uh, particularly, for example, a really good, a really good discipline is to, uh, I'll, I'll give you this one, this is, and it's not my invention, uh, a billionaire 
colleague of mine. So he made a billion. I, I only made a hundred million. But he did real well. With his, and it works out perfect, really, really nicely. But it's a discipline. You can't deviate from it. You've got an idea, put make it 10 slides. Make 10 slides or 10 pieces of paper. It doesn't matter. But, you know, 10, not 11, not 9, 10. All right. And you present that to five prospective customers. And if you don't have three of them saying, what, where have you been? I want this. I, like, I need this. I want it. Then take those 10 slides and push the delete button. Go get another idea. Okay, go get another. There's lots of ideas, right? Um, now, let's say three of them say, I'm interested. Then you ask them straight up. Cool. I need to know. I don't want any money. I'm not selling this right now. It doesn't exist. But will you give me X amount of hours in, in the next 90 days to continually review my status of my development of my product? And if they don't say yes, delete button again, okay? You need all three of them to say, I'll give you a whole bunch of time. You know, in other words, they have to come out of their skin, come out of their, come out of their existence to, 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 to want this uh, feather in their cap once it exists. Um, and then and at, the, at the very, once you, once you have your product done, you come right back to them and say, listen, I'm selling it now, and I'm going to give you 50% off on this thing if you give me weekly updates on its usage, okay, and what you're doing, what you like, what you don't like. And again, the moment those three don't say yes, delete button, go to your next idea. Now think about it. You're going to have many failures like that and feel bad, by the way. You, oh man, I had this great idea. But hey, let me tell you, once you get to the next stage, which is now you're starting to sell to customers, the other, you know, a bunch of those so-called the next hundred customers, you sit back and tell them, I built this thing. Here are three companies that use it already today. All right. This is exactly why we built it this way, because of what they needed and wanted in their input. And you're exactly like them. You want it and need it. You should love it. And you're going to love it uh, kind of thing. Uh, and it works out really well. Uh, it, it doesn't. It, it guarantees success of the, your eventual product by definition. And it also gets rid of a whole bunch of crappy ideas real fast. That's really critical, too, because it saves your most important thing, which is time especially when you're starting, whether it's a product, um, making a product, prototyping, all that takes super long and it's a very long process. So you don't, if you don't actually validate your idea and know that people, once this product is created, are going to use it, um, I think that saves tons of time because you don't want to waste all that time making the product and then you, you go to sell it and you realize that no one wants to actually buy it. Um, and now you've just wasted more ideas that you could have been working on during that time correct so, so coming out of or, or after this company after you're working with this consult or you started this consulting company why did you decide to uh, move on to your next um company that you were working on sure so remember that pyramid trying to understand what the what, what's the better best way of uh, is it better is it better to um keep on moving with us research or is it better to, have, to secure leverage of all the things I've learned about um, bringing products to market, making presentations, et cetera, to all these corporations? Um, and, or, or would it be better to um, become sedentary, a little bit more sedentary um, and um, get a lot of data that's already collected from other locations and then build up what would be what I wanted to, which is proprietary algorithms that predicted success in the marketplace 
uh, and then focused deeply on patients uh, uh, and uh, turned out to be what we did was a patient identified data. So our, our data could be merged across data sets from insurers, hospitals, physicians, and in our particular space, which was of expertise, which is specialty pharmacy. And then we were able to, uh, to walk into farm school companies as they were designing their products in future markets and give them services at extremely you know, high prices, you know, charging millions of dollars uh, to um, tell them whether their, their ideas now are going to be good or not. Because, you know, uh, sometimes, in, especially in healthcare, it's a complex market. You know, you're not really, I'm not talking about over-the-counter products. When you're selling a complex $10,000 uh, per month cancer therapy, you've got insurers uh, that are looking closely at it. You have physicians that have to prescribe. You have healthcare systems that have to implement. It becomes a, a complex web. Uh, and having relatively simple algorithms that take in a lot of data and provide some um, differentiated recommendations become save pharmaceutical companies untold um, millions of dollars becomes uh, you know an awesome little product to have. So it's definitely was higher up in the value uh, of, uh, within the pyramid and uh, wanted to uh, pursue it because it worked out real good. So you mentioned that it was a heavy data company, um, and that's how you made a lot of the decisions. And you mentioned these algorithms. Um, something I want to ask is that was were these algorithms designed by people that worked for you, or at this point? Because I know this was probably around two thousand, even before two thousand, um, and AI was developed a bit. Um, was AI a part of your company at that point? No, not 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 the start. Um, for AI to work well, you need truth tables, and these truth tables are typically based on very large databases, so that you pull out a particular instance of reality, uh, and then you build your predictive capability around that, and then apply it to areas where you uh, to to the data that uh, that is not quite as full or complete, and then and, and then test to see what its uh, area of the curve is, or or just basically is is predictive value. No, at the start we were literally just trying to build the databases. Uh, and integrate data. Um, that by itself, by the way, just the integration of two data sets that have never been together before uh, creates a fair amount of value right off the, right off the bat. Uh, then, then securing other data that has, that um, people would not normally can think of as being uh, helpful uh, becomes even even more um, you know more interesting and, and, and a lot of fun. I'll give you an example. You know, so it's really easy if someone was to tell me or you grab the data that says. Here's a drug, here are the sales, here are all the doctors that prescribe it. Becomes relatively trivial uh, to say who are the top prescribers, right? And who are the best sales reps? You know, what are the best geographies? You know, that's that you can even do that in Excel and, and do some sorting kind of thing. But then then when you add on, let's say, another data set that talks about um, what the patient's uh, economic status is, right? Now you might be able to predict how long the patient's going to stay on drug, right? Then you can predict what the and model what the value is of having a, a copay assistance card brought into the marketplace that will then allow more patients to be on drug longer, and then you get to model that out. Um, and then if you were to bring in things like uh, let's let's say it's an asthma drug, and you can bring in uh, pollen count from around from every zip code of the country, right? Then now you can be able to predict. When the upsurge of a use of an uh, an allergy, uh, you know, a product for uh, allergies is going to spike, 
and you know that in advance and therefore they're going to be out of stock and so you can actually tell people in advance you know uh, where to send their product uh, and they go how would you know that and then all of a sudden oh my god look at this they predicted in advance uh that we were going to run to the stock and they were right um the uh yeah you they'll sign up for long-term contracts with that and how do you convince these clients that you mentioned are paying you a lot of money for this data how do you convince without these truth tables or without data that already exists that prove that your algorithms are working how do you convince them that they should pay for this service and that will actually be accurate or help them in the future yeah so by the way this concept of accurate is not very useful or accurate uh, or uh, should say accurate um um is not, is a is a is a, a misnomer of sorts in business accuracy is a relative term okay it's not an absolute term and so you only need to be as good as or slightly better as anybody else um, in delivering your service um, there's other factors like cost uh, speed convenience that are a part of the you know decision making criteria of, of, of clients um, <clears throat> and so um, what you have to do is walk in and say, what are you doing now? What's your current practice? Okay. What's the standard that you, that you've got and then make a claim that courage where it starts off, you know, that's the five C's and that circular, um, you know, paradigm is that you, you step out and say, listen, we can do better. And they might ask, well, can you show me you can do better? Okay. And when you're, when, when, when you get a certain amount of courage, you say, well, you know, uh, there, there, is, there are costs to setting this up. There are costs to establishing this process. And once you get a good reputation, actually, you can even start earlier and you say, no, listen, if you think that I might be able to help you, our team be able to help you, first pay us $30,000 and we'll give you a proposal that'll show you what the first project would be that would, would have a chance, a, a probability of um, uh, de demonstrating in a pilot fashion how this would work. Right. Um, so we make the 30,000, then we do the pilot and the pilot might cost a couple hundred thousand. And then, and then they see that they, Oh my God, this is amazing. You can actually do this. And we go, correct. Well, uh, let's, 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 let's do this for about, uh, what am I, the, the, the number I like a lot is $83,000 a month. It's a good number to start with because if you can, uh, it doesn't seem like too, too much, you know, 20,000 a week or so. Um, because, uh, that's 23, 83, the number 83, Multiplied by twelve gives you, uh, uh, you know, a million, right? Um, and and from there, my goal is always to try to drive it to three to four million, you know, over a, a, a couple year um, engagement with a, with, with a client, um, and that often works out. Um, so it's uh, you, you you need to have they have to have enough confidence in your uh, past work, and the single best way to do that is to do networking. What I mean by that is that uh, I'm not a big one with with sales reps. Um, they're super expensive in new spaces when you're building, you need them and you pay them a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, to make sure they do great work for you. But uh, I'm a big believer in sitting back and saying, here's a team that we helped at Johnson and Johnson. There's 10 people and we, I stay in close contact with them learning about their kids and their family and their vacations and everything. Right. And those 10 people in a in modern day uh, corporations, probably those 10 people are still working at the same company in one year is zero, zero. One, two, or four of them have left, and they're now at another company, right? 
but I like them. I know them. <laughs> I know them real well, and they really know our work. And I remember I jump into the, uh, I make sure all my, my team, we jump into the foxhole. We don't come up until, until that's problem solved. They know that. And so they're more than happy to make sure that we are brought in warm, no cold calls, really warm presentation to the next company that they're now go at because they got a promotion because they're probably involved in our project. Okay. And, and now they bring us into uh, Pfizer or they bring us into, you know, uh, Bristol Myers or the other, you know, other big corporations until, until we find ourselves, you know, highly penetrated. That's a really, really surprisingly easy way to get new business. Uh, and that is by simply doing really good work for people who have a trajectory in the, and in, in a, in a career de development path, uh, that of course necessarily typically takes them to other companies because of so extending, way. extending that networking beyond just business relations and actually like really just getting to know people that are working around you because you never know in the future they could wind up being at other companies that could then be helpful for your company Correct. notice that you said you never know what i'm saying is that while i can't be specific <laughs> i can be 100 percent sure that some of them will and therefore that's part of my main growth trajectory plan that's how I execute. And, and so you can either invest money in advertising, you can invest money um, in sales reps, or you invest money in your clients. And that's my, that's the one I pick. Yeah. Time and money and, and your, and your resource uh, to, you know, to, to help them out. And you have to make sure everyone on your team, everyone on your team, uh, which is why the longevity on my team and tenure becomes more effective. That's why I keep people. Um, just make sure they're in a spot where they can contribute. And by the way, people always stay with your company if, if you're, not because you're paying well, by the way, but, but because they have a knowledge that they're contributing, a knowledge that they have autonomy, and a knowledge that their, their, their compensation is tied to their contributions. And as long as it's fair then they're, and, and respected, they're going to stick around. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, so something that I want to hear your perspective of, because you've been with, or you were with Prometrics for 20 years, um, maybe over 20 years. Um, and it being such a data heavy company, um, I'm sure you've seen firsthand how the data boom has kind of taken over um, the entire world over the past 20 years. Um, what are some of the developments that you've seen or how businesses run just from running Prometrics over those years? Well, that's an interesting question. So, um, the, in fact, the answer would be th by looking at the companies I start. Because what I do when I look at all the data, I sit back and apply that five C's again, especially the critical thinking and the creativity part, uh, and ask the question constantly: What does this mean, right? And so uh, at Prometrics, uh, we've had like over 140 clients and. Uh, uh, I can tell you that 14 of those clients had a, a, a subset that, I, that I, I've given speeches about and, and because they've started four or five companies for me. And, and the reason the observation was pretty simple is that seven of them bought the other seven. But I'm the one managing their patient level, most important data, very sensitive data about what patients are doing, how many drug, uh, what, what prescriptions, how many prescriptions, how long they stay on product for, how fast they get their drug, et cetera. And, um, 
and if 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 they if one company spends billions of dollars over by the way all these seven transactions uh, resulted in over fifty billion dollars worth of transactions, and um, needless to say, I guess to give you an idea of how valuable the information is. If I was to tell you that I'm launching a product, and I get to see the you know the, all the prescriptions, uh, in in after the first uh, four weeks, if a let's look at two scenarios: one doctor prescribes ten different patients this drug. All right. Um, after these four weeks, and after uh, four weeks, all ten patients are still on drug, right? Uh, and you know that's a pretty good sign, right? Um, Let's say the the doctor has only, for sake of argument, only ten patients that that would meet the criteria for this drug, and another another doctor, similar kind of doctor, similar specialty, also has ten patients, but these only put them on only three of their patients went on, and of those three, only one remains after four weeks. Okay, which launch is better? Obviously, one launch is much much better, and you can use that modeling after looking at a, you know a whole series of patients. Uh, to model the future, the next ten weeks or two, you know next three months of the launch, correct. Um, and then the question becomes also, what drugs did they choose to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in to be able to get this result of this you know crappy result versus a great result? Yeah, and 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 we see that, and then we see these two companies get together to help fill the gap uh, of of the product product portfolio. Um, I sat back and sat there and looking and knowing that I'm not too bright, knowing that and what I mean by bright, I'm not a genius, right? So I have to look at other people, other people's footsteps. And I really felt after a while that it was a little bit like, like if you can think about it, a guy living and working in New York City uh, on Broadway and my job's just opening and closing the curtain. When you open and close enough tur- curtains, what do you learn? You learn who the good directors are. You know which shows last and which shows close quick, right? You know who the good producers are. You know which actors are prima donnas and assholes, and you know which ones are amazingly, con- you know, passionate about their craft. And so maybe since I saved up some money, I'm going to put on my own play and I put together like the the A team, right? Perfect A team, um, and got a good shot at it. So that's why uh, three of the companies that I started in, uh, in, in the last bunch of years are included uh, oncology companies because. These seven companies buying these other seven were oncology companies with portfolio issues, which are to be which are clearly enunciated in the data when you look at it carefully. And so I said to myself, I'm going to start my own pharmaceutical company. Now I got money, right? I got a lot of money, so I can I, I can actually start it without having to be diluted and use my own money to, uh, to you know to do that. Um, and that's fascinating to be able to see the need um, and build build things based on that specific need. Um, of companies, so you know, some sometimes you build things for the ultimate customer, like someone that walks into a store and buys it, or you build it for a patient that's going to be prescribed a drug, or you build it so that your customer is actually the pharmaceutical company that will want it uh, uh, to be able to bring it to marketplace. And that's one of the one of the parts of my portfolio today is focusing on what companies need, so that uh, hopefully they'll buy buy my stuff, which is the product is the company in this case. So uh, having run or like running that many companies at once, I assume you're making a lot more decisions, impactful decisions versus make versus making like a bunch of decisions for one company throughout the day. It's more you're making big decisions um, that will affect the company in the future that you really have to think about. So how, how do you make uh, good decisions, especially when they can have large impacts on a company's outlook? over the next couple of years? 
Yeah, um, I, that's part of the uh, process that I enjoy now. It's fairly cerebral. Uh, again, humbly realizing that <laughs> A, it's a big decision. B, it might be resource dependent. Uh, C, require uh, a lot of money to uh, be at stake. What I do is I generate exhibits. So as a consultant, one of the things you do a lot is you make slides, right? And then you also uh, create these exhibits um, to support a decision, to support uh, and describe um, the conditions in marketplaces. And so what I do is try to see, I'm just gonna pull this all full circle now, the exhibit as an obstacle that I want to go through successfully in order to get to a point where I can be better off on the other side of this obstacle and make and see clarity and make better decisions. So I put to, I asked myself, what is the exhibit that was, should be in evidence for me to make this really hard decision that you're, you're referencing, Liam? Um, and so I build the, 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 this, this exhibit, which might be um, uh, how, how much should we invest before we bring this pr potential product to a pharmaceutical company, right? And so, um, you know, is it ready for prime time? The exhibit might be, what are the names of the five people, their, 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 their title, their email address and phone number, um, and the right person to contact them for which they'll be able to get access and get the, you know, a commentary from them that would in fact be a, pro, a prospective, um, not decision makers, but rather gatekeepers and specifiers to that decision. Um, build that exhibit and go about filling in the damn table. Uh, and, 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 and by the time it's filled in, the decision almost always is amply obvious. Not that you need the exhibit to make the decision necessarily, it's the process of the obstacle that, that, you, that you've built that, that, and it's the, uh, of living with it and, 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 and having a discipline to go to finish it that allows you at the end of that to say, damn, I'm ready to make the decision. It's, it's, it's clear. Thursday. Um, in the same way yeah. that, you know, we go back to the other example of these, you know, 10 people uh, or five people that might buy your product. Most people don't do that because it's a pain and it's work. And it's an obstacle. Uh, but if you can, if you, you commit to the obstacle, which I'm, so I'm writing a book slowly and it's called obstacle, obstacle manifesto. The idea that there's some really big advantages, especially for plain people like me, you know, that will always want to have a million, hundred million and want to get there. Uh, and trying to figure out how all the other smart people can do it and, and how hard it's going to be is that by devoting yourself almost religiously to the concept that build your obstacles, get through your obstacles, and it gives it so you get so much more confidence. So, so Liam, I know that that before you ever ran, you know, I'm a big guy. I love ob obstacle courses like Spartan races. I'm not good at them. Oh yeah, I like them. I like them. Right. I'm a, I'm in better shape without them. I'd be in much worse shape with them. I'm in better shape. A lot of people are in much better shape than me. And the first time you ran one. You did exceptionally well. You know, it's awesome, awesome job of doing it in an amazing time. But if you think back about it, well, first of all, I'd ask you, did you feel good about getting through all the obstacles of the obstacle course, right? And that you probably felt amazingly good about it, right? Ready for your next obstacle course or now thinking even better and higher up into Ironman and things like that. But that was the first time you did it. But, but think of all the obstacles that you did prior to that in preparing for it that really made the difference, right? It's the preparation that really makes a big difference. Uh, and then the question is when you prepare, are we preparing directionally? Or are we preparing like a little bit everywhere all over the place, you know, and, or, and listening to people rather than listening to yourself. So entrepreneurs need to listen to themselves and maybe a little bit less to 
the world and maybe a little bit less to professors when it comes to starting a business. Listen to the professors when it comes to getting grades and a parchment. That's cool. Um, but when it comes to your real trajectory, your real dream, listen to yourself, build and then but build obstacles and get over, get through and bust through them. Because once you're on the other side of the obstacle, you are so much better. Kanye West and other people, of course, are quite correct. You know, maybe some people, some are a little bit crazy, but, uh, you know, you are, you know, what doesn't kill you make, makes you a lot stronger. Uh, so I'm not suggesting taking any great, uh, great, great, you know, risks or anything from a physical perspective or health perspective. I'm talking about mental and discipline to um, get, be better and better and prepared in life. Uh, and that gives you great confidence. It's also a lot of fun because if you, if you pick your own obstacle, damn, it's, you know, you're the responsible one uh, to, uh, to see it through. That's a great outlook too, because when you approach big goals that you might have, um, they can seem very scary. Just looking out, especially if there's something that involves so many different steps. But when you do take that that obstacle approach and you start with an obstacle that you have in mind that you can get through, then you slowly build up, and each obstacle that you do get past, and each um, each struggle you work through, it ultimately it builds on itself. So then you get to a point where that overarching obstacle that you looked at before doesn't actually seem as bad because you've made all those um, previous obstacles that give you confidence. Uh, correct. No one ever, you know, when you're successful, that no one's ever asked me. I know I'm, you know, to be debatable. My my buddies that are billionaires, I'm not as nowhere nowhere near as successful as they are. Um, but a lot of people think that, you know, I've achieved certain things. And, uh, but no, I, my point is this, no one ever asked me, how fast did you become a millionaire? How fast did you become a 10 millionaire? How fast did you get to 50 million? You know, that kind of thing. It's not important. Uh, and therefore you, what you can take from that is that it's probably a lot better for you to take a, a more comfortable view of being aggressive at your own selection of obstacles and have fun at it rather than being subjected to other people's really difficult obstacles that sometimes are painful, sometimes make you second guess at your whole career, you know, career decisions and, and, and make you potentially even feel unworthy. Or, or for that matter, some people kill themselves, right? Because they're of, of lack of success. And it's very, very sad that because the key thing with an entrepreneur is that you can be in, manage it properly and you'll be always in control of the decision making, therefore in control of your uh, uh, um, satisfaction and of your uh, destiny. And that's, and by the way, and that overall satisfaction can be completely independent of financial success. Um, I'm almost invariably, you're going to be more successful than anyone taking a salary, invariably. But I know a lot of you know, people that are really happy and do do good, do well. They're just not gazillionaires, but they do really good and they're really happy. And 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 it's because they have control over their over their life and their existence. I mean, I, I cannot work for anybody. I'm sure, 100 percent sure now. I knew that you know 40 years ago too, because the idea of waking up in the morning, putting in lots of time, and enjoying every almost every damn minute of it. Uh, is um, is one of the best gifts a person can have, in my my opinion. And I'm very thankful for America for for doing that. It's a little bit a little bit harder in Canada, but of course, much harder in many countries around the world. Yeah, and I think it boils down to people comparing themselves, like especially my generation. I know a lot of times they'll compare themselves to to other people's achievements, what other people are doing, and then they approach what they're doing today is almost like a race or is 
they have to get to that point. And until they get to that point, they won't be happy. And I think it's just super important to notice, to, to be happy in the moment and whatever you're doing and to pursue things that will make you happy as opposed to, to what other people want to do. Because ultimately, like, that'll help you just do more every day and it will just help you stay more in track with what you're actually meant to do. Uh, yeah, Liam, I think it's a good thing to consider uh, so I can describe this quickly, but, you know, Cartesian plane, X, Y, you know, nice little graph paper. Uh, and there's point A, let's, you know, on, 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 on the left and point B further down on the right on the X axis and, um, and a line. And let's assume that the line goes up uh, from point A to point B, you know, there's a slope. Um, and then on the X axis, it could be 5, 10, 20 years, you know, whatever it is, your horizon. Um, and, and what people tend to measure themselves and, of course, externalities other people measure is the height of the Y axis of this point B at a future date. Could be money, could be prestige, could be fame, or whatever. Um, and and they focus on the height of that B. Uh, and so, I, I, rather than the slope, and and I'm I'm going to point out that, that that the slope is quite irrelevant. But most people, when they're young, focus on the slope. And what I'm saying is that depending, if you worry too much about the slope, how fast you're gaining this success, uh, you actually jeopardize your eventual success. Which of course, on average, will decrease the height of B. If you if you pick a nice cadence of 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 of, of, of your obstacles, of your challenges, and that you hit hit them all, or eighty out of twenty, of them, anyway, eighty percent of them, um, of, with uh, with a certain level of uh, of, of of confidence and, and enjoyment, you're almost always going to stay on course. You're going to stay with a little bit of pivoting, and and eventually get there. No one's going to care at the, how many years it took. Yeah, no one's going to care about about the slope and therefore i'm suggesting that you not just make sure it's positive and guess what you'll get really far uh really far yeah so taking it back to to like what you do now um i know you said portfolio um at this point would you say you're more of an investor and you're looking at other people's ideas and trying to to take those ideas and make them a reality um, one thing's for sure, I definitely focus on uh, on uh, looking for other at other people's ideas. I'm probably looking at business plans every week, um, but the fundamentals never change. Never change. Always the customer. Always has a need, a bona fide need, uh, documented need. Um, and I'm using critical thinking to um, and creativity in that early stage of this you know virtuous cycle um, before getting into collaboration and. Um, I don't actually, so since I can, you know, you have to choose what you invest in, I don't look at anything as a, in isolation. And so all the, I have a set of criteria for the portfolio. And one of them is that the idea that's, that's not my idea. It's this other person's idea. They started a company, thinking of starting a company. And I ask myself, is it synergistic with my other companies? Number one. Number two. Does it fall into my area of passion? Is it, you know, you know, healthcare kind of thing and, and biotechnology related? Okay. The, the number the next the next is do they have a need for data? Because if they don't have a need for data, I'm not going to be throwing. I'm not going to be necessarily adding a lot of a, a lot of um, contribution to it and added value. Uh, then I ask about where is their failure? Where's their gap? What's their what are they missing? Because no company is perfect, and I got to be able. To identify failure, you know, so uh, and be able to fill it, then there's synergy, and then it makes sense to uh, 
to bring that company into the portfolio. Um, and therefore, by the way, I have to be active. All my, in all the companies that are in the portfolio, I'm actually pretty darn active uh, in, 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 in helping them uh, in the ways that, I, that are easy for me, but they look at it as an amazing added value. This guy's a genius. And I'm sitting back, well, I already had it. I know it's part of my, it's part of my being, and I've been preparing for that for 40 years, for Pete's sake. So on my end, it's kind of easy. Um, yeah. So you're looking like even doing this, this venture capital externship I'm doing right now. Um, it's cool seeing how different investors approach looking for companies. Um, and some investors are just looking for that big idea that will change the world. And they're not looking as much for something that they're interested in or they're passionate about. So it's cool to hear that when you're looking at companies, one of the big things that you're just trying to take into account first is does this company align with what I do and what I want to do in the future? Um, and and your company, as you say, is very just dealing with data, is lots of data. And I know you mentioned to me all the time the importance of AI in the future. Um, how does AI take part in your companies or, or what is the impact of AI? Sure. Uh, excellent question. So, um, you go back 10 years, I didn't even know, <laughs> figuratively speaking, what AI was or how to spell it in the sense that uh, how to implement it, um, it was not something that was part of the, my day-to-day -day, you know, existence. Um, about It was probably about five years ago where it started becoming part of an everyday existence, and now it's just constant, constant, constant. Um, and, and I teach a course uh, in AI um, at Westchester University. And I think that everything we do in the future will be AI driven, which also therefore, by the way, changes dramatically <laughs> uh, how we deliver value in, in any of our companies and, or any, and eventually any of our products. It'll also change, by the way, everything we do with regards to how we learn and prepare for our futures. So um, today it's kind of cool. People ask what, software program should I learn? And it also might ask what languages should I learn? And when, by the way, when I was in school doing my MBA, we were all told, and I, I, I agree, so I learned Japanese. Okay, Japanese were kicking ass around the world in manufacturing and quality, uh, et cetera. And I, so I, and I eventually set up an office for one of the companies, Duest Research had an office in Japan, Shinjuku, just outside Tokyo, a prefecture. Um, and um, and it was you know very exciting and fun and everything. But I need to tell you, with, with if you go uh, in your lifetime, maybe not mine, but certainly in about between the twenty thirty and the twenty fifty time frame, I don't think anyone will ever study a language. I don't think anyone's going to ever study a piece of software in terms of the coding part. And I don't think anybody is going to um, be in get well. There are so many things of daily living that we won't be in, in, engaging anymore. So, because so, when you walk up, if you want to, let's say you want to do some business in China and you jump on a plane, you fly to Beijing, Shanghai, you're going to have a little thing on your lapel here that says, it's going to, one, recognize who the person is, all right? Recognize their, 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 their domain of, uh, of language. Uh, and you're going to speak in your tongue, which will probably be you know, English. And automatic real-time translation will take place with AI to even use the intonations and the, and the appropriate dialect uh, and, and industry nuance. So this person hears exactly how they need to hear it, okay, to be comprehended. And the same thing too, you're not going to be, uh, you know, you're not going to be um, 
the writing software, you'll be speaking. I want this to be achieved with R or with, with C++ or with, with whatever language you might be working in and uh, Python. And guess what? It'll appear on the screen in front of you. Um, bingo. Um, and if you're a thinker, you won't even do any of the checking. You'll someone else on your staff will check to see if there are any bugs. In the same way that clearly, uh, Liam, you you enjoy driving a car, don't you? Well, no one's dri no one's driving cars in 2030. Okay, uh, and by 2050, there won't be cars because we'll be doing you know you know other things. But um, you know, I've I've had a Tesla, and, you, and your family has a Tesla. I know. Uh, you know, they're getting. We're still in the infancy at the moment, but uh, when people see that the reduction in um, um, outcomes that are deleterious to the to, to, to processes, like an accident, a car accident, right? They decrease dramatically with data. In other words, when we're all in the uh, all in our cars, and instead of being ten thousand cars and ten thousand decisions, it's one AI program and algorithm knowing where all the other cars are. It's never going to let a car hit another car. Trust me. It'll, it'll give you, just like you don't take your spoon and smack it into your eye, right? <laughs> because it's one one central processing unit, uh, not a whole bunch. Um, that's good. The things are going to be so much more dramatically connected. So in my space, the AI became so much easier to bring into value formation So uh, in real time. So now when a patient is, uh, so one of the things, ones I put together, uh, I put the team together that did the software because I wasn't smart enough to do it myself. Luckily, they were so much better at doing it. Uh, anyway, is that we have a program right now used by a lot of pharmaceutical companies that when a patient presents himself uh, to a doctor and the doctor is about to write a prescription, our software tells the doctor, if you write this prescription, as indicated, whether it's covered by the insurance company, all right, whether it'll have, what the probability is of after confirming that's covered would be covered as part of the formula that that, that it will that it will actually get through the benefit verification process because we'll simulate it in advance. With the probability of getting through the what's called a prior authorization, that was do they meet all these other criteria as well? Uh, you know the previous drugs and previous exemplary uh, compliance before they go on this expensive drug. Then, then, then determine what the chances are of them staying on drug for six months. Do they need additional incentives? Do they need additional stimuli? Do we need to put them onto a patient engagement program? In other words, all these various decisions that a pharmaceutical company needs to make typically are made instantaneously at the moment of a patient uttering you know, their, their problems and the doctors making a diagnosis. It's all in there. And so the pharmaceutical companies know patient by patient In other words, the market doesn't become 10,000, 100,000 patients. It's patient by patient, marketing, marketing support, marketing communication, patient engagement, deployment. These are all things that cost money. They're tailored to each patient because of artificial intelligence. And it saves this whole system a lot, a lot of money. And you mentioned all these different just breakthroughs, things in the future that can happen with artificial intelligence. And... Like even for someone like myself, it can be kind of overwhelming because you don't want to get caught behind and you don't want to miss out on all that innovation. So what advice would you give for someone, especially someone that's young like I am, to get into the space and to start to not get left behind and to actually work on these things that will have such big impacts on our future? 
Yeah. Um, I can understand that it may be worrying, uh, but it, I, I would suggest that you should be uh, actually just uh, be much more um, excited about the opportunities that it creates. Um, I mean, af after all, you know, there's so many, you sit down and look at your phone, right? <laughs> uh, your iPhone or your Android, your smartphone. I mean, there's, there's like, I think between 400 and 600 patents involved in that machine. And it's doing so many things more than a phone did only, you know, uh, a decade ago. Um, and, and, and if you bring that phone right now to someone in Africa, certain parts of Africa anyway, they would be really scared. This is just too complex, too fast, too whatever. But you're pretty, pretty, you're pretty comfortable with that phone now, right? You're actually exploiting and leveraging untold intellectual property. And uh, by the way, without a doubt, I'm going to say over easily over a thousand algorithms, of which over a third of them are machine learning type algorithms, which are part, you know, subset of artificial intelligence. And basically, you just enjoy the benefits. You enjoy the the added synergy to your existence as a human. Um, and, 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 and your efficiency and more importantly, I guess your brain stimulation to focus on things that are reinforcing and satisfying to you, uh, are, been, are just being increased. But I think what I would do is, uh, because if you feel soon, by the way, I feel very, uh, especially when I'm in, in the, in the midst of people that are really smart, that I've hopefully attracted to, to be a, a part of the, uh, the journey on a, on a company, uh, an entrepreneurial journey is that, uh, Things get complex pretty fast, and you're right. I get, I, I even get, you know, well, gee, what am I doing in this company? This stuff is really way over my head, you know. And, and so it's really cool. I go back to my diary. I go back to some key basic things, and I go to the stuff I used to put up on the wall. Now it's just in, the, in my binder. Um, of fundamentals, easy little diagrams of what it is we're doing, and fall back on the simplicity, not the complexity. And then that drives your decisions because if you have a paradigm for decision making, all you need is criteria, establish the criteria, rank the order of them, maybe put weights on them, but you'd never need much more than a back of an envelope to make good decisions. And maybe an Excel sheet. <laughs> I use that a fair amount sometimes, but it's, it's still done pretty quickly, uh, literally in, in, in minutes or, or so to, to be able to weight a little bit of complexity. But fundamentally, uh, the fact that data emerges just makes our ability to simulate potentially a decision impact and to deliver uh, new value is really, really, really substantial, especially today with, you know, you know in, as we talk today, 5G is rolling out slowly, uh, but compared to other kinds of technology, rap, very, very rapidly. Um, and, and we've got what's, what's going to permit things like edge computing. So instead of centralized comp computation, we'll have edge computing, where in other words, things being done right around you in your room in terms of a computational perspective. Um, and that's, that's going to permit the internet of things to blossom, uh, which we you know, have only a small little bit today of, um, that's going to permit, um, individualization and, um, a, a process enhancement so that people live their lives, um, in, in a way that they design themselves. And hopefully they do so in a way that, uh, that, that, gives them a, a, a great uh, life for the years that they live. Now, the other revolution, by the way, is the biotech revolution. Um, mRNA has saved untold potentially billions of people on this planet. And now uh, one of my friends, Benzel, uh, Stefan Benzel over at uh, Moderna, uh, is, a, and I know them well because I'm starting a company with one of the, uh, one of the founders, is that, is that uh, they've got 50 different products in the pipeline for mRNA, including a bunch of ones for cancer. 
Um, so we're going to live longer. So we're going to live longer and have this great technology around us that we'll be able to manipulate and manage for our, our good, not let people like, uh, not people, but companies that try to infringe on our privacy, but we'll be hopefully be able to push them to the side and keep our, keep our privacy, keep our high quality, higher quality of living, uh, but more importantly, even our set and satisfaction with our the existence, which is going to be longer. So, so a lot, a lot to be happy about and a lot to be, uh, to, to you know to, to celebrate it's a, it's a it is a bit of a brave new world but uh now now what if the, the other thing too with entrepreneurs I'm, this is a very important statement i'm going to make liam for you because i know you i know you're a great guy you got a good heart you got a good brain uh world the world's going to get complex every once in a while go back to fundamentals and the other thing is that when you become successful which you absolutely i'm 100 confident uh uh no, don't worry about when you become successful that as long as you are confident you will i'm sure you will because your capabilities that is that then you, over time, start worrying, thinking about how you can give back, how you can help out, how you can be, pick for yourself, not someone else telling you how you want to help other people in the world, other geographies in the world, other other types of challenges. You pick them, and they tell you it's very rewarding to know that you're during your time on this world. Uh, not only did you win the game, if you will, but you also gave back and. Uh, and, and taught other people uh, and, and and made it a lot better uh, than when you when you came in, thanks to your mother <laughs> and, and and everyone else around you. So you know, in my case, I like education, so uh, I'm helping out uh, with a new building on campus at Westchester, um, making sure that all of our businesses give back to uh, the community. Uh, and in case of pharmaceuticals, um, committed to bringing the new technology at a fraction of the price to uh, under or developing nations so that that leads pretty much right into the last question that we like to ask everyone on this podcast um to finish things up and you've almost that almost was the answer right there um and that question is what is your why behind all the different actions companies you run what is your ultimate why to when you wake up every day this is what i want to do and this is what i'm passionate about yeah, uh, the reason I do it is is, uh, is is actually you have to be egotistical and self-serving to a certain degree, and then once you've achieved that, which is in my case not too much, you know, there's not a big, it's not a real big uh, container, <laughs> uh, but but everyone once you get there, uh, and now you're no longer worrying about money, no longer worrying about uh, any kind of uh, concerns about you know Maslow's hierarchy. You're at the highest level. You sit there and go now. To be really, really happy, I gotta figure out how to give it all away, all right, and in in some way, shape, or form. Because uh, I'm, a, uh, you know, notice that Gates gives it away. You know, uh, um, our, our, most people eventually kind of give, but they have to give it away their own way. You know, they're so that because um, after all, you, you don't take it; it's not with you six feet under. Right? Uh, and and. Uh, and everything that happens in the in whatever afterlife, whatever faith or tradition you might be believing in, this is not not important. What is important, though, is that how does that faith and that future consideration play a role in making you a better person, happier person, more fulfilled person while you are walking the planet? And you're the only person that can truly answer that question. And and once you answer that question, you go about uh, working it. So it's like you know, it's like anything, right? You you make the plan, you work the plan. Uh, I just, uh, the key thing between the difference with entrepreneurs is that they typically make the plan themselves and work the plan themselves. 
And that's part of the satisfaction process. Other people, the majority of people actually, are much better off and better served by by, by taking direction and, and, and working as a team. Sometimes being great executives of great execution, you know, but they're but they're not entrepreneurs. Um, and and um, we don't have a, a we don't get to, to have a, necessarily a team or necessarily a certain jersey or necessarily a certain um, you know major club that we belong to. And that's why that's partly because we listen to our own our own drum. It's an internal drum uh, and, and rhythm. And, uh, once you get this, this level, of, it's a minimum level of confidence. Once you get it, it's self, self-fulfilling and, um, and, uh, uh it, it's ongoing. It just goes up, keeps on going and going and going. And it's, uh, that is truly, truly, uh, if I was an entrepreneur, I'm sure I, I don't think I'd be anywhere near as happy. You know me, I'm a happy guy and have a, a lot of fun. And this world is an amazing place to, uh, to walk into and I get way too much fun out of it. So I'm a hundred percent sure that Elon Musk is, while he's right about a bunch of things, he's wrong. It's not a simulation. This is real shit and it's fun. Couldn't have said that better. Mr. Dewey, that's all I've got for you today. I loved hearing about all your different experiences surrounding starting companies, entrepreneurship, our future, um, all the different struggles and failures you went through as well as what you think and how you think people should approach entrepreneurship and tackling their goals in life. So I continue to wish you all the best of luck with all your endeavors and couldn't thank you more for coming on. Hey, Liam, thanks a lot. Have a great day and uh, a great rest of the semester in your in your first year at Purdue. You've got an awesome institution. Really appreciate it. So uh, for all our listeners, please hit that follow button and check out expedition.success on Instagram. If you would like to talk about today's episode, have any questions or recommendations, please reach out on our Instagram or through our email at expedition.success.podcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.